Welcome to Twill Week in Health Law, the hollow chocolate bunny podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 17th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by my co-host, once again excluded from the White House Easter egg roll. Frank Pasquale, law professor at University of Maryland School of Law, and thanks Easter Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> this week on Twill, a real pleasure to greet Deborah Stone, the distinguished visiting professor in the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. Deborah Stone specializes in analyzing the politics of policymaking in advanced industrial states as well as developing countries. She is famous for her classic book on the topic, Policy Paradox, The Art of Political Decision-Making, which has now gone into four editions over 25 years and has been translated into five languages. Her research continues to focus on health policy, disability policy, caregiving, uh, and a whole range of policy issues. This is a real treat to have you on the pod, Demer. Thank you. It's a treat to be here. Looking forward to this discussion. I was uh, dipping into uh, the wonderful policy paradox the other day, and there's a piece early on in which uh, you, I think it's in the introduction, in which you note how Obama's midterm losses were actually thought of by some as something uh, as a victory. Quote, the reality of presidential politics is it helps to have an enemy, uh, one commentator. Data, uh, you reported stating. And I, I wonder whether we are seeing some of that play out today uh, in that uh, uh, we've noticed that the president continues to bring up either President Obama or Secretary Clinton as a kind of uh, current enemy, as though the election was still being fought. It's, it's really a puzzle why Trump is still fighting the campaign and still feeling called upon to blame Obama for everything think that's wrong or that is even going wrong now. It's also puzzling why he has a need to keep on creating an enemy after he won. I think we can only speculate that this has something to do with his psychic makeup. I shouldn't get into uh, diagnosing (laughs) people with pop psychology, but it's striking that he seems to feel kind of insecure enough in his power that he needs to keep fighting the fight he already won. Yes, it'll be interesting as as to whether this actually does turn into a president against Congress type of fight, either now, when it theoretically at least shouldn't, but uh, certainly if some of the uh, projections are correct, after the midterms, when it it may well be a real fight between between two branches of government again. Well, we saw that already when the health care bill went down. Already there was a lot of tension between the White House and Congress and uh, finger pointing. So I want to talk a little bit about the Affordable Care Act because there are a couple of pieces or concepts that come out of policy paradox that I think are very helpful for someone trying to understand the pathology of, of the Affordable Care Act and, and health care reform generally. And two pieces I wondered whether you could expand on, um, if you if you think they're as, as useful as I do. First of all, you talk about how Americans don't appreciate sort of a negative concept of liberty. And you talk about that in terms of the individual mandate and why uh, that was unpopular. And secondly, the the 
section of the book discussing synecdoche, which I, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing correctly, uh, this idea of the whole represented by one of its parts. And I think that concept seems particularly true of the Affordable Care Act, its history, and even currently its sort of life or death state. Um, one can only, one can talk about sort of uh, how the Affordable Care Act has been called Obamacare, whereas the Affordable Care Act has many, many different moving pieces. It came out in the death panels uh, kind of discussion, cherry picking data on premium increases on the exchanges uh, was a, a, a big part of the Trump uh, electoral agenda, and then the Ryan HCA kind of approach. And I wondered if you, if you could just sort of round out those uh, two issues, which I'm sure I've, I've, I've mangled. You've done a great job and you pronounce synecdoche, at least the way I uh, was taught that it should be pronounced. So kudos to you. Let me start with that piece, the idea of framing or representing a policy problem or, or any, any issue by letting a small part of it stand for the whole. And the classic uh, strategy in policy politics is to tell a horror story about one case of something that went terribly wrong or some terrible fraud and make that make out as if that were the entire description of the way the policy works. You brought up a couple of, of examples. I think that the unsung hero of the Affordable Care Act was the prohibition on insurers using pre-existing conditions to deny people health insurance or using former illnesses uh, or being at risk for illness as a way to raise their premiums or a justification for raising their premiums. That's called actuarial rating. And the Affordable Care Act uh, stopped those two practices. And that, I think, was probably the most significant accomplishment because it changed the way insurers have to work. Of course, it was a huge accomplishment that 20 million people or so got uh, got health insurance under it. But changing that underlying business strategy of insurers is, is really important because denying people health insurance because they're sick just undermines the purpose of health insurance. So getting rid of that business tactic was really important. The other reason I think it's so important is that the term pre-existing condition has now become part of common usage. Everybody knows that term and it's become a synonym for sickness or illness. And now with all the talk of repealing Obamacare or um, making changes to it and cutting it back, no one wants to get rid of the pre-existing condition ban or prohibition. And and I think it's important that we have this this new word for sickness, pre-existing condition, because it it conveys to ordinary people the idea of sickness, or, or and sometimes cancer. People are just infuriated that someone should be denied health insurance because they have or have had cancer. But at the same time, pre-existing condition is a word. It's a technical insurance word, and it really refers to insurers denying people coverage. and And I think that's important because. A lot of people who supported Trump 
uh, don't want to pay for other people's illnesses. That's what health insurance does. Most of what we pay in our premiums goes to pay for people who are sick and need care until we get sick and need care. And then some of our premiums go to pay for us and our care. But for the most part, most of what we pay into insurance goes uh, to other people. And that's why a lot of people feel that they don't want to pay. They don't, they want to cut back on health insurance and we shouldn't have uh, coverage for everybody. However, these same people don't want to get rid of pre-existing exclusions. They understand that that's, that insurance companies are the ones doing something bad, not lazy or drug using people who are causing their own illness to take some of the stereotypes uh, that are used. So, so to come back to your, your, you know, your question about synecdoche and the small representing the whole, I think that pre-existing conditions were the seed planted in, in Obamacare that is going to last, uh, and any reform that happens now is not going to be able to do away with that. So I wanted to follow up on that point, uh, Deborah, with some points that you've made in a piece we got a sneak peek at um, called Health Equity after Trump, um, in which you describe some of the problems with the dominant uh, neoliberal paradigm in uh, achieving healthcare reform, tracing it back to Enthoven's uh, 1978 lecture, Cutting Costs Without Cutting the Quality of Care. And what I love about your uh, characterization of this approach is that you talk about the health economists are ones who appear to be believing in a free lunch. Um, and while Friedman told us there's no such thing as a free lunch, we've had health economists for decades telling us, well, actually, if you just subscribe to the magic of the market, you're going to be able to have both increased quality and decreased cost. And I'm wondering if you could comment on how, uh, you know, while you've just commented on how Obamacare uh, planted a seed of something very positive in the sense of these pre-existing condition limitations, um, giving people more of a sense of eventually having a right to health care, um, or a right at least not to be discriminated against by insurers, um, how other aspects of, I think, a dominant paradigm embraced by the Obama administration and others may have actually helped uh, smooth the glide path to Trump by, for example, promising that markets could solve many more problems than they actually can. It's sad that the Obama administration and, and the Democrats in Congress, they they weren't the first to, uh, as you know, you know, to say that markets could somehow give us more more for less or, or give us a free lunch. That's been the the dominant approach for forty years, and unfortunately, um, that the real downside of Obamacare was that it could not they could not get rid of commercial insurers as the basis for providing insurance. We our system evolved um, with commercial insurers um, uh, being the first first in uh, into the market, so to speak. And now, um, once w when Obama was doing the reform, uh, they were just too strong a vested interest, um, both financially and politically, to change the system so that commercial insurers wouldn't be the major providers 
uh, of insurance. And that's led to a lot of problems. Uh, the reason we have, we got Medicare and Medicaid in the first place uh, is because uh, nobody can make a profit taking care of sick people. It's just not profitable to, um, especially to insure um, the elderly um, because they're going to be getting more diseases as they get older. So, so what, what the market reforms did is they, um, they promised more freedom. And we come back here to um, Nicholas's question about, uh, you know, about liberty, concepts of liberty. The um, market reformers have always promised people that they'd be able to choose their provider and they'd be able to buy whatever services they wanted, but not be forced to buy services that they don't want. And that, of course, is one of um, the Republicans' current beef against Obamacare is that it mandates coverage of certain benefits uh, like uh, maternal health care and reproductive health care, preventive health care. In fact, all of these uh, market reforms have actually restricted people's access to care, and they do it in two major ways. One is that the commercial companies and the managed care programs that are are run by commercial companies under public health insurance, they restrict the, the network of providers that their members can see, and they restrict the benefit package. So in those two ways, they, they restrict the services that are covered. In those two ways, people have less freedom under, under managed care. And of course, these programs also, without saying so, I mean, these market reforms limit the, in some way the total cap on what will be paid, whether it's a per capita basis or a, um, a cap for a group of, of insured people. Uh, uh, when the money runs out, the care runs out. So that's another way that people really don't have uh, so much liberty to uh, to buy what they want. And I, I want to come back to Nick's uh, question about the negative concept of liberty. The negative concept of liberty is that um, freedom is not having somebody else restrain you from doing something that you would like to do. And that's the concept that was promoted in the market reforms. Government is restraining you from buying the health insurance that you'd like to buy and forcing you to do something that you don't want to do. There's a positive concept of liberty, which is that in order to exercise one your freedom to live the life that you want or, um, or strive towards the goals that you want for yourself, you need some enabling resources. And that is, is a concept of freedom as well, that we can enhance people's freedom by giving them the resources to, to fulfill their life goals. One of the most important goals people have is to be healthy because that enables you to do anything else you might want to do in your life. You get health as a prerequisite for what we call equal opportunity, and it's a prerequisite for any kind of personal achievement. Yeah, that is true. It's true in terms of like being healthy. It would seem as though the positive freedom to have that would be really critical. I wanted to, you know, turn the conversation a bit to some points you made in an article called Caring Communities, What Would It Take? And in that piece, you address some policy assumptions that I think are at the core of 
both the AHCA and at the public backlash against them. And one of them uh, is that overutilization of care is a big problem. And I think you see that both in the AHCA's uh, effort to replace pre-existing coverage laws with a continuity of coverage requirement, or to replace the mandate with a continuity of coverage requirement. And secondly, you see it with respect to you know efforts to get rid of, say, essential health benefits, or as you mentioned earlier, um, the Freedom Caucus's effort to get rid of certain requirements for covering, say, maternal, maternity care or other um, uh, things that you know the, the, the men in the Freedom Caucus don't believe they should need necessarily pay for. And I'm wondering if you could address how these policy assumptions, like overutilization of care being a big problem, how they have distorted the health policy discourse, either in the example of the HCA or in the broader uh, long-term perspective on American health policy. The assumption that people overuse care was behind, also um, behind market reforms going way back 40 years ago. Most care was paid for on a fee-for-service basis. Um, and and uh, the idea was that doctors would over-prescribe and over-treat because they got paid more. Uh, so they had a, a, uh, an incentive to overuse care or get induce patients to overuse care. And um, health economists also argued that when people have health insurance, it essentially makes health care free. So who wouldn't just use it uh, to their heart's content uh, because it was free? And I think there's so much wrong with that with that assumption. First of all, medical care is not a typical consumer good. It's it's one of those things that you hope not to have to need. If you need medical care, you're 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 sick, and that's not a good thing. So most people don't want to need care. And I I think another problem with that assumption is that it's people with little insurance and people with little income who actually underuse medical care unless um, they they typically get less preventive care. They get things treated late instead of early because they have other more important needs for their money. And they typically don't fill prescriptions or take their prescriptions regularly because they can't afford them. And we see this this assumption playing out in a really distorted way in some recent proposals to impose a, a work requirement on people who get Medicaid, very similar to the work requirement that was added under Clinton. And also there's proposals to charge people on Medicaid premiums for uh, for their uh, health insurance. And those, we know that raising the cost to people of getting health care for, for people with limited incomes, that will simply discourage them or prevent them from getting health care. Uh, what's ironic about all that is that preventive care and early treatment ultimately save money if you can treat things early uh, and before they get more serious. So, so the whole uh, the whole policy uh, direction uh, built on the assumption of overutilization of care is really going in the wrong direction. I very much take the point that the ACA created problems by accepting what appeared to be the only political route forward following the insurance industry's attack on the earlier Clinton plan. And that was to say that the the touchstone for access to healthcare was private insurance, both through exchanges and so on, and also increasingly through bringing private models into medical 
Medicare, Medicaid, and so on. So I, I get the point that that makes it a very complex system, even more opaque, because now we have to discuss both insurance costs and healthcare costs. And while they're intertwined, the relationship is frequently hard to figure out, and different political leanings will tend to lead policymakers to pull different levers there or thereabouts. But fundamentally, someone surely has to manage costs of healthcare in some way. Now, I am not going to get drawn into being a target for Frank, who gets annoyed anytime anyone brings up a, a particular percentage of GDP. Neither do I want to go all technocraty, but there is no modern healthcare system in the industrialized world that does not have to ration in some way. And so I guess sort of a global criticism of, well, managed care is more about making profit than anything else. I'm not sure I, I can necessarily buy into. Okay, so let's go to the question of um, rationing care or, or, uh, or managing costs. And um, and they're the same thing. Ma- managing costs. Right, healthcare right. could consume uh, all of the GDP if we wanted it to. Some people say that's actually a good thing. Better, more of the GDP should to go to making people healthier than some of the things it's now being spent on or you know, has been spent on. But if we want to limit it, there are two basic ways uh, that you can do that. One is you can have implicit rationing according to um, categories of people. And that's what we have now. Some people get more care than others. If you use the market to ration care or to distribute care, to use a less loaded word, then people who can afford more will get more. And that's how care will be distributed according to income and ability to pay. That's what markets do. The other major way to distribute care and limit it at the same time would be to uh, to think about what kinds of services, therapeutics, diagnostic tests, whatever, are most important and make sure that those get distributed equally universally. Uh, it's a big argument for childhood immunizations that way, that uh, every every child um, by giving every child uh, immunizations and other preventive uh, services and treatment early on, um, you really maximize health for everybody. Uh, and um, there are some uh, uh, countries such as Great Britain and there are some states such as Oregon that have actually used this approach of using expert determinations about what kinds of services are uh, most valuable to the entire population and making sure that those get paid for first and, if necessary, limiting uh, very high-tech and expensive services that uh, extend life or make life a little bit better for a few people who happen to have those conditions. So that's a different way of thinking about distribution. And I think those are great examples. But I want to go back to this fabulous piece that, um, that Frank was talking about earlier about um, your caring communities piece. If you do go down the the Oregon 
the NICE in the UK type approach, then how does that impact your those policy assumptions that you were so skeptical of, such as um, data being a key to um, improving care um, and other sort of technocratic uh, types of analysis? That's a great question, and you know, when I uh, the piece that you're referring to is about uh, is about long term care, and I. Uh, was rather harumphing about um, the way uh, home home care nurses now make their first visit with a laptop in hand and spend two hours collecting data for their laptop instead of actually giving care to the poor patient who's uh, who's the victim of this visit. Uh, so, and in that sense, I thought you know data were um, <laughs> overrated, let's say. And but what I've just you know you rightly say that what I've just talked about is. Um, is ways to use um, expert assessment of data to um, uh, to maybe distribute care uh, more uh, more effectively and more equitably. Uh-huh. Now, um, again, I would say we've tended to use expert systems to do this kind of rationing. So get some docs in a room and get them to, uh, uh, and, or get some statistical analysts to, uh, to look at whole bunches of studies and look at outcomes and uh, somehow crank it all through a, some fancy statistical model and come up with a ranking of what treatments are valuable and what treatments are not valuable. I would uh, I would ask for including much more uh, um, individual, almost ethnographic or experiential data in those kinds of exercises. So um, uh, a hip replacement that might have been judged early on, let's say in Oregon or in um, uh, in the UK, hip replacements were judged as. Uh, kind of luxuries for a few people uh, and um, uh, without really asking what difference it made in the life of the person who received a hip replacement. Uh, and it's enormous. Uh, it's uh, absolutely life-changing. I think that uh, data, of course, data are useful, but we should not limit ourselves to the kind of easily measurable, countable uh, things that tend to get counted in statistical studies. And we, we need much more psychological, sociologically informed information about how what difference treatments make to different people. Yeah, I could not agree with that uh, more. I recently served a term on the Council for Big Data Ethics and Society uh, that the NSF sponsored, and it was one of the themes of the social science researchers that this type of qualitative data is very important. I'd also say from the perspective of caregivers and providers um, that this problem of data gathering is a really intense problem in terms of both interfering with patient care and creating very difficult burdens that may lead to burnout. Um, And that when we look at things like scribes and others who could be additional paraprofessionals doing this type of data recording, that I think is extremely encouraging. It is hard to implement them when we have, you know, an administration that wants to transfer a lot 
lots of money from healthcare to military expenditures. But I think it's really important to keep our horizons open to this type of paraprofessional uh, data gathering assistance because if we don't, we're risking a generation of providers from doctors down to home health aides that are just going to feel uh, fed up with a system that gets in the way of their providing real care and empathy. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting. I don't know if you've had this experience, but um, my primary care doctor used a paraprofessional scribe for a while. Before she went to that system, she uh, there was a big change in my relationship with her when, when she started using a laptop. And she sat at her desk and she typed in a laptop while she was talking to me. She was particularly good about it and she made eye contact with me and she listened to me and then t- turned to her uh, keyboard and put stuff in. I had another doctor who just typed continually while he was uh, while I was talking and and I couldn't he didn't look at me I couldn't tell if he was listening to me uh, so um, that data gathering can really change the doctor-patient relationship and that relationship is so crucial to therapeutics I mean we we really forget that it's the doctor-patient relationship and all the the reassurance and the hope and the, and the trust and the education that goes on in that relationship that's what's effective um, it's not the the instruments and the drugs that really cure people uh, I mean, they do have some effect but I think the relationship is the great uh, sort of unmentionable placebo in in, uh, in medical care. I often um, quote Abraham Vergesi's uh, piece on uh, the eye patient, that uh, when you have that uh, laptop or the, the screen yeah. inside the room, then you maybe the doctor stops treating the real patient and starts treating the, the digital uh, representation of the patient. Yeah. But on the, on the patient-physician relationship, the whole idea of sort of caring, caring communities and so on, are we in the state we're in now, perhaps, because it used to be the physician, the Marcus Welby MD, as our surrogate who kind of took care of the caring pieces in the system. But I wonder whether doctors either want to do that anymore or in more of an industrialized healthcare setting are able to. Yeah, that's also a really good question. And I think there it really varies. Some do and some don't uh, want to do that. Also, I think we've seen a big change in the creation of hospitalists as a separate profession. It used to be that Marcus Welby followed his patients into the hospital. If they were hospitalized, he went and visited them in the hospital. And now we have a total separation between primary care doctors and hospitalists. So the doctor who sees you in the hospital doesn't know you from Adam, doesn't know anything about your background and your family and your uh, even your history, except what's in the chart. There comes that data again. Uh, so I think that it makes it harder for hospital-based care to be as caring as it used to be. I think it, uh, it's really different, which is not to say the staff in hospitals aren't very caring. Uh, I just had um, eye surgery, and I was really impressed. It was just an in-and-out you know, uh, day procedure, but um, I was really impressed at how compassionate everybody on the staff was, even though they were seeing me for all of a few minutes here and there. I just wanted to wrap up with something pretty topical, which is the recent popularity of Medicaid work requirements in the conservative policy community, uh, both in the state level and then perhaps the federal level with the assumption of Seema Verma uh, at CMS. And uh, 
for example, uh, Representative Jody Arrington of Texas said that um, Medicaid is a seductive entitlement. Others have said that it causes laziness and idleness. And Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price has said that if we forced Medicaid re recipients to work, that would be, quote, restorative to people's self-worth, their sense of themselves, end quote. And I'm wondering if you could just comment on this uh, new vogue for work requirements um, for Medicaid recipients and what that tells us about the prospects for health equity in an age of Trump. People who say that kind of thing are looking at um, health insurance as if it's a cash benefit. They're just uh, making it equivalent to welfare. And it's already questionable whether welfare is a, um, or, you know, uh, uh, income assistance is um, seductive and leads to laziness and idleness. It's not an assumption that I buy or an argument that I buy. But it's absolutely outrageous to think that giving people health insurance um, and access to um, to see a doctor or be able to afford drugs that a doctor prescribes them, it's outrageous to think that that somehow is an incentive to, um, to drop out of the workforce. One of the things that we know about low-wage work, that people on, uh, who, who need Medicaid and people who are on, uh, in, on TANF, on income assistance, the, the low-wage work that they can do typically doesn't provide health insurance. Um, and that's why they need Medicaid, because employers in those jobs, uh, in those industries, don't do their duty and provide the employer-sponsored insurance. And so their workers, are they are actually being subsidized by public programs that pay, like Medicaid. Uh, it's those employers um, who don't provide health insurance that we ought to point the finger at for being seduced by, uh, by the availability of Medicaid into shirking really their responsibility, I think. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Stone for joining us. What a privilege it was to have you on the pod, Deborah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. We post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>